Good morning, everybody. It's great to see you all. Uh, it's a good crowd today. It's a good crowd today. So we've had two years of very, very grim news. More than two years, perhaps, of very, very grim news. And every and and I don't want in any way to be disrespectful for the people who have, who have uh, been hurt and suffered uh, over the last few years. Um, but I want to bring a word of encouragement to us all today. Um, I want to create a context for hope. I want to talk to you about a much bigger narrative for which the war and things fit. My talk today is entitled Representing God. Um, and it's about making the world a better place. And you have to ask yourself, how do you make the world a better place? And there's, as always, hope and encouragement and teaching in the Bible that's directly relevant to this. And we've been following the book of Matthew through the last few weeks, and I'm going to give the ending away now, but it ends with the Great Commission. Um, at the end of uh, the book of Matthew. Um, and I'll just talk to about, about that in a minute. And the Great Commission is to, is to work together to make the world a better place. That's actually what the Great Commission is. Uh, to become salt and light in this world. And I've actually got some encouraging news for you. You're actually doing a really good job and I can prove it with numbers and things as you might hope <laughs> but what is the great commission in Matthew uh, 28 verse 18 it says um, Jesus came to them and he said all authority on, in heaven and on earth has been given to me and therefore go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And what is it that he's commanded us? In Matthew 5.16, he said, Let your light shine before men so that they will see your good works. In Matthew 5.44, he said, Love your enemies. In Matthew 22.39, he said, Love your neighbours. And in John 21.15, he said, Feed my sheep. I always try to mention sheep uh, in a talk. But it's not a rules-based system. God demands mercy and not sacrifice. So uh, the, the, the piece of scripture for, for me to refer to for this talk is an unbelievably huge piece of scripture. It's like four whole chapters. Um, and so I can only, um, in the two hours I've been allocated for this talk, <laughs> I can only touch on it lightly. Um, but um, in Matthew 10, Jesus sends out his disciples. And he sends them out to heal not to be motivated by money and power, to be shrewd, 
to be innocent, to be on their guard. These are the things that he was telling his disciples. And in Matthew 11, he talks about John the Baptist, who comes across as Jesus' personal superstar prophet. Um, uh, he says, and Jesus says of him, when you see him, and when you went out to see him, was it for his words? Was it for a reed swayed by the wind? I love that phrase, a reed rattled by the wind. Uh, it's not just empty words. It was that he came as a prophet to introduce the, the Jesus. He came in to introduce the Christ. He came to, 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 to bring us um, the most amazing, world-changing person in the person of Jesus. But it wasn't a rules-based world like the previous um, uh, Judaism. Um, it was a mercy and a sacrifice-based uh, world. And Jesus also said in Matthew 10, verse 42, he says, if anyone gives a cup of water to one of the little ones who's my disciple, I truly tell you, that person will certainly not there lose their reward. And so really what I'm trying to draw from this at the moment is that we've, we've so often, we've, we've, we've had a gospel that's based upon what goes on in our head and our thoughts and things like that. And I'm not saying that's not important because what we understand and what we believe and what we have faith for is important. But in actual fact, the gospel that Jesus lived was the gospel of doing things, of making things happen. Now, I'm going to call upon history here to help me withdraw this wider narrative. For those of you that endure the weekly um, or daily look at Facebook, you would have noticed a few weeks ago Scott posted something that I thought was quite impressive. So thank you, Scott. Scott, by the way, has been a friend of mine since we were both 11 years old and we met first day at school, um, at senior school. So, but, so the posting that Scott posted was the realisation that 1970 was 52 years ago. And that 52 years before 1970 was 1918. And that really blew me away, because 1918 is like the dim and distant past. You know, it's a very long time ago. But 1970, I just about remember. 1970 was an interesting year for me, because I was 14, and, and, and it's that, that's that age where your brain wakes up to, to, to things that's more than food and school and, and stuff. Your brain wakes up to the fact that there's other things going on in the world. Uh, and that's why uh, 1970 was, uh, was important to me. 1918 uh, is actually, funny enough, important to me because that's the year that my mother was born. And so there's a connection, there's a leap uh, thing. But how the world has changed, completely changed, since 1918 to now. In two generations, long generations, but has it changed for the better or for the worse? Let me talk about 1918 for a little bit. You have to in, indulge me a little here, because I love 
history and facts and stuff like that. So just indulge me a little bit. In 1918, my mum was born and the Great War was ending in Europe. A second Battle of Cambrai took place in um, September 1918. Um, and it was the breakthrough battle that would lead to the end of the world war. Uh, my dad's brother was born that year and he was named Cam in honour of that battle. And my favourite poet, Wilfred Owen, died a few weeks later, a week before the end of that war. At that time, and this is interesting how history repeats itself, at that time, a global pandemic was sweeping through the world that had started in Kansas, but the Americans being masters of uh, marketing managed to get it called the Spanish flu. <laughs> but it began in a chicken farm in Kansas. And some say that 3% of the world's population at that time uh, passed away as a result of that, that flu. Also in 1918, there was war between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, a war that would, uh, that would have terrible consequences in the 1930s. In 1918, most men and all women were not allowed to vote. And in, and in the act, uh, the representation of the People's Act in um, 1918, they passed a law that enabled women who were over 30 to vote. And men, even if they didn't have a house that they earned, could also vote. Um, in a, and, that, and that first took place in, um, in, uh, on the 14th of December uh, in 1918. So let's fast forward 52 years and 1970, and I was 14. And as I mentioned earlier, just becoming aware of what the world was like. At the beginning of that year, the Biafran famine was ending. Do you remember that? The images of starving and dying children were seared uh, into my head. Vietnam war was going on. And young people who didn't particularly want to fight in another country and were fighting for in another country and dying in another country, like probably a lot of young Russian men who don't want to fight in another country and don't want to die in another country are, uh, are, are doing so. Also in 1970, there was the world's worst um, typhoon. It killed half a million people in Bangladesh. Nixon was the president in America and Harold Wilson was the prime minister in the UK. And for those of you that like science, in 1970, Apollo 13 broke down in space. Do you remember that, Houston? We have a problem. In 1970, the Beatles broke up. In 1970, this is a nice piece of local news here for you, the Isle of Wight Pop Festival took place. 600,000 people crammed onto an island with a population of 100,000. Um, it's the largest pop festival of all time. And Sheila's sister was there, and Andy's brother was there, which is information I found out yesterday. Um, 
Bill Gates and Steve Jobs were at school. There were no, there were no computers that ordinary people could access. And troubles were ongoing in the, the, the Northern Ireland. And this is actually, as, here's a final statistic that I think is a little, it's almost the worst statistic about what life was like in 1970. In 1970, there was not a single black head teacher in England. If you were, I mean, I remember a few years later when I left school, I had a couple of A-levels and a positive outlook on life. Went for three job interviews and got three job interviews. Got three offers for, for work. A couple of A-levels. Happy smile. Here I am. Uh, and, and that was, was like... If I had been a woman, that would not have been true. It would have been more difficult, much more difficult. If I had been black, that would not have been possible at all. Uh, the world was different. It was unfair uh, in those days. So let me talk about how things have changed through time a little bit more. We're getting near the end here, so please. There's a few more statistics, but I love statistics. They draw a, a great picture. The population of the world in 1918 was 1 1.8 million people. In 1970, it doubled to 3.7 billion people. Today, it's doubled again to 7.9 billion people. Billion people. Get that, it's an important point later on in this talk. In 1918, slavery was legal in 157 countries of the world. In 1970, it was legal to keep someone as a slave in 75 countries of the world. This year it's not legal to hold someone as a slave anywhere in the world, although there are forms of indentured servitude that cause pain um, throughout the world as it is. In 1918, the percentage of children who would die before the age of five was 39%. 39% would die before the age of five across the world. This is, a, this is the, the whole world. By 1970, that had improved. Improved, if improved is the right word to use. 15% of children would die before the age of five. In this year, across the world, it's still a terrifyingly awful number, but it's 4% of children would die. But there's been progression through the world. It's unknown actually how many people were malnourished in 1918, but in 1970 it was 28% of the world's population were, were, were starving or malnourished. Today it's 11% of the population. Still a big job to do. Still a big job to do. In 1918 it was unknown how many girls went to primary school, but in 1970 it was just 65% of girls went to primary school across the world. Just 65%. 35% didn't go to school. Primary school. And today that number's dropped to, to 10%. And across the world, in 1918, 32% of people were literate, as in they could read and write. In, 1950, in 1970, it was 50% of the population of, of the world were literate. 
and today it's grown to 85% of the world uh, are literate. Life expectancy in 1918 was 41, in 1970 it was 72, and in 19, sorry, in 2022 it was 81. That's actually just in England, that's just in the UK, sorry, but, but that, that last number, but 41, 72, 81. So, I, I, you can tell my point, can't you? My point is that there is scientific proof that the world is a better place. Now, as we read the news at the moment, we've seen disease, we've seen war, we've seen corruption in politicians filling the news hour after hour and minute after minute, and it's hard to hold on to the fact that things have got better. Because the news that we see on the TV isn't the news, it's the bad news. It, 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 they can't include good news, it doesn't, doesn't sell tickets. Um, it's the bad news. And, and I want to say that the reason why um, the reason why the world is a better place is rooted in the gospel. It's absolutely rooted in the gospel. Now I'm not saying to you that the whole world is Christian, because we know that that's not necessarily the case. But the ethical values of every civilised country in the world is rooted in the words of Jesus and in the, in the teachings of Jesus and, in the, and, and before that in, in, the, in Judaism. It's the ethical framework. And, it's, and even if people don't believe the truth of Jesus' love for them and, and, and the change that that can bring, that is still, the ethical framework is still the ethical framework that's affecting the world. And so the world is full of billions of people who want their neighbours to be safe, who want their children to grow up, who want to see an end to starvation and an end to pain. And the billions of people in the world that are motivated by that framework that, we, that we're, we're based on, they outweigh, they outweigh the evil that some men, why is it always men? Why some men do, that some men do. Um, and, 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 and that's why I think the framework of history is for continuous improvement and continuous change. And there will be horrible setbacks and there will be terrible things like we see in the news today. But the, but the long-term impact of the life of Jesus and the life of his people is for continuous change. So let me share with you the parable of the sower. And I'd like to put a slightly different emphasis on the parable of the sower. We've always seen the parable of the sower as being a parable about the gospel and the seed of, of the gospel. And indeed it is. But it's, it's more than that. I think it's more than that. So, um, Jesus went out of the house and sat by a lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it. And all the people stood on the shore. And he told them many things in parables, saying... A farmer went out to sow his seed, and as he was scattering the seed, some fell on the path, and some birds came and ate it up. 
Some fell on rocky places where it didn't have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Another seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. And still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop a hundred, sixty, thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. The seeds are also our good works, our good deeds. And there are billions of people doing good deeds and doing good things. Last, a few weeks ago, my good friend Russell, who was so kind to pray for me this morning, so I should be kind back, stood here and said um, what he did at Wycombe. And, uh, and talked about the, 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 the kindness and the act of goodness that he fulfilled by going to Wycombe and doing some help. And you might say, well, that hasn't changed the world, that, that thing. And, and, and so it, it probably hasn't. But Russell is like all of us here in this room. He's like all the people who I work with in my office. He's like so many billions of people across the world who are doing good deeds one day at a time. And that has had that cumulative effect like the sands of the, the grains of sand on the beach. Uh, and it just fills the whole world. There's one other good thing that's come out of these last few weeks and months. I don't know whether you've noticed this or not, but when Putin invaded Ukraine, the world stood together. Everybody standing together. And that's the fruit of the good work of the seed that's been in everyone's heart. People know what's evil and what's wrong and they stand against it. Not just one or two, not just a few angry politicians, but everyone. The people in my road, the people in your road, the people in the shops, the people at McDonald's who won't sell hamburgers in uh, Moscow as a mark of uh, anger. Whatever it is, all, all, these, all these companies, countries, they're all standing together. That never used to happen. Just in recent years, it's begun to happen. I think the best and first really good example of that was apartheid uh, 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 back in the 70s when the world stood together um, uh, for apartheid. But we've seen it in the Black Lives Matter movement and the Me Too movement about uh, sexual assaults against women. Uh, we're seeing the world standing up, standing together for good. And so I suppose I would end by saying... The world is in a better place, despite Ukraine. And I think it would be good for us, if, Sheila, if you don't mind me saying so, is if we could signify the fact that we recognise that the works that we do and the good things that we do make an impact across the world by standing together 
for Ukraine. Just stand up and say, you know, we, be we believe in Ukraine, we believe in that, in that future. Because it's that kind of standing, standing together, um, that multiplies uh, the, uh, the, the, the gospel uh, and its impact on the world. So, is that if you... If you Thanks, Jeff. Actually, I think I think we're going to leave it there. Um, I think that's a significant way to end. We've had great words today from a lot of people, and um, standing together at the end, I think, is a good way. I just think it would be great to reach out an arm to the person next to you and express your blessing on them.